0: Welcome to this episode of Lifestyle Matters. I'm Sabina Nithianandan and I'm joined once again by Dr. Fergal Armstrong um, on this episode. Welcome, Fergal. Thanks for joining us. Later.
1: Pleasure to be here as always.
0: Great. So today I thought we might talk about alcohol and its impact on lifestyle medicine itself. But before we get started on that, I thought it might be interesting just to just have a brief discussion about its history. Alcohol was discovered thousands of years ago, um, and it was commonly used by doctors and nurses as an antiseptic, um, as uh, in terms of just to sterilize wounds and, um, uh, well, to sterilize wounds really. And essentially what happened was at one stage, um, water was also thought to be um, too dangerous to drink just because of all the bacteria that were in it. Hence, people were drinking alcohol instead of water. What happened in the end is alcohol became one of those things that were quite addictive and people started consuming it quite regularly and heavily and then discovered that there were health implications on consuming such high levels of alcohol. Um, and, you know, I guess just to take it into Australian um, statistics itself, a recent study actually showed that one in six Australians actually consumed alcohol levels at a high level where it places them at a lifetime risk of an alcohol um. Uh, alcohol related injury. Fergal, would you like to take us through as to what what makes alcohol so addictive?
1: So I think firstly, okay. we need to understand why are we even talking about alcohol in the, in the context of lifestyle medicine? And it's useful to remind ourselves of the three Fs and the three Ss of lifestyle medicine, which are the pillars of lifestyle medicine. So we've got the feet, the fork, the fingers, sleep, stress management, and socialization. And alcohol fits into the fingers. So by fingers, we're talking about tobacco smoking and other substances. And alcohol is is a really important issue to discuss within the context of that framework. So why is alcohol addictive? So all addictions have to be understood in terms of not only the substance per se, but also the context. And if we look at the substances per se, all addictive substances, either directly or indirectly, increase the amount of dopamine, which is the pleasure neurotransmitter in the brain. And in particular, in a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, and that's the part of the brain that mediates joy. So when we win something, when we have a lovely meal, you know, when we experience pleasure, we get a dopamine rush in the nucleus accumbens, and alcohol it causes such a rush, and so that's why it's addictive in terms of its ability to cause addiction there there', there there's, be, there's been work to actually determine how likely you are to become addicted after first exposure. So actually, we know that tobacco is to, nicotine and tobacco is the most addictive substance on this list, and that you're you're about thirty two percent likely to develop a dependency after first exposure to nicotine. Then comes heroin, which runs in under about twenty three percent. Uh cocaine is about fifteen percent, uh alcohols about ten or eleven percent. So you can see the 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 ability to cause dependencies as related to the substance. So alcohol's not the most addictive substance, but you know, after after exposure, ten to fifteen percent of people may develop a dependency.
0: And what I read is actually that um that people were actually, in Australia at least, Alcohol as a drug is one of those most commonly um, treated drug with another drug. So lots of people actually seek help to try to get on top of their alcohol addiction, um, which is quite interesting, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So alcohol is is, is commonly used as a substance to numb pain, right? So psychological pain. Alcohol is used to numb that pain. Alcohol is also used by a lot of people who experience chronic pain to actually numb physical pain as well. But it's not really a very good analgesic because, yes, it knocks you out, but over the long, over the long time it, it causes more harm than good and it doesn't actually then lose its ability to manage pain.
0: And the other thing about alcohol is the fact that it is actually so, such a socially accepted drug, um, mm. and that's why yeah. it's quite commonly used by people, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So remember I said to you, we have to understand the context of alcohol so that because it is legal, because it is socially acceptable, um, and because heavy drinking is, is is socially acceptable or has been in the past socially acceptable in Australia, that's why that's one of the reasons why we have an issue with it. So, I mean, you quoted figures of one in, one in six people. So I, I, I go by a different study that quoted the percentage of people that drink harmfully in the previous year and the percentage of people who binge drink in the previous year. So, one of the, there's a triennial survey that is done called the National Household Survey. And that's basically a survey, it's a, a subject of survey sent out to 20,000 people nationally. And they basically ask questions about their, their use of substances. And so we know from that survey that roughly 25% of people have binge drinked or have, have, have binged on alcohol in the previous 12 months. And we know that about 15 to 16% regularly drink at harmful levels. Which then then brings us to the question of, well, what is a harmful level of alcohol? And really, new guidelines, the most recent guidelines uh, suggest that we should not really be drinking any more than 10 standard drinks per week and no more than four standard drinks on any given day. Now, when you can convert that into stubbies or, or bottles of wine, so a bottle of a bottle of red wine is about eight standard drinks, and a bottle of white wine is about seven standard drinks. And a stubby can be anything between one and one and a half standard drinks. So you're looking at maybe eight beers, and maybe a bottle plus a cup, a glass or two of wine per week. Now, I know. It, that's a good I, point. I, I look after a lot of people with alcohol use disorder, and that's the kind of consumption levels they would have in a day. Mm. So and I think context. it's a
0: good point to, yeah. And it's a good point to actually make because lots of, lots of, well, I guess many people actually think one standard drink equates to one beer, one pint of beer, one glass of wine and one spirit, but that's actually mm. not true because no, they all have varying amounts of alcohol content. So yeah.
1: yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Well you talked about binge drinking and um, uh, regular consumption of alcohol. So I have patients who come in, you know, Especially younger um, adults who come in saying, you know, I I don't drink every day. I just go out on the weekends and I have about eight to 10 standard drinks on the weekend. What would you say to that?
1: Well, the problem with binge drinking is that it puts you at risk of uh, accidental injury. So we lose, we become disinhibited. And we there is a statistically proven increase in the likelihood of injury once you go past four standard drinks on any one occasion. Now that's the that's the definition of uh, of of uh, the safe limit of drinking in Australia. But it, a lot of people will then say to me, "Well, what about the United States? What about the, U- the UK?" So it's 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 a really interesting point to bring up. The definition of a standard drink varies nation you know country to country. And the definition of of what is binge drinking also varies. So remember, in in Australia, one standard drink is 10 grams of alcohol. And really, we shouldn't be drinking anything more than four standard drinks in a day, right? So that's effectively 40 standard drinks a day. And really, you shouldn't be drinking any more than 10 standard drinks a week. So again, that's 100 grams of alcohol a week. So if you compare that to the States, well, in the States, a standard drink is 14 grams. And the... um, the recommendation for um, for uh, for alcohol consumption in the states varies between men and women, but for men, it's two drinks, two standard drinks a day, right? So you're looking at 14 times 14, was about 190 plus grams of alcohol per week, and so the upper limit of consumption of alcohol for men in the United States is almost twice as high as that recommended for both men and women in Australia, and if you look at the definition of binge drinking in the United States. The definition is to actually achieve. Uh, one of the definitions is to actually have a blood alcohol level higher than the drink driving limit, which is set at 0.08. Now, remember ours is 0.05, and so the one of the uh, one of the bodies dealing with alcohol and advising the country on alcohol states that it takes about five standard drinks in men or four standard drinks in women in a number of hours. So, in a, say four hours or two to four hours, it takes that level of consumption to actually achieve a blood alcohol concentration of higher than the drink driving limit. So there are various differences internationally in how we define alcohol consumption and binging. Let's go back to the Australian issue. So I I think the modern definition of of binge drinking in Australia is basically drinking more than four standard drinks, which is 40 grams of alcohol on any given day. And the reason why it's been defined is because you have a higher likelihood of accidental injury as a result of that kind of disinhibition. So going out on a Saturday night, three beers, that's probably four standard drinks, and then you may need to cool it down.
0: Yep, well, okay. Well, I guess that's good advice. <laughs> All right, so I guess we talked about you know, why it's um, addictive. Um, because it's, so what you're telling me is that it's addictive because it makes us feel good, essentially. But then the downside is when the wearing off effects of it. Um, what are some of the potential adverse effects of alcohol consumption?
1: So we need to understand that alcohol affects practically every organ system in the body, but let's just focus on the brain, the heart, the liver, and the the gonads, and also we need to talk about cancer. So remind me to talk about all of those if I forget this list. So that's the brain, the heart, the liver, the gonads, and cancer. (laughs) So let's look at the brain first of all. So we know that acute alcohol intoxication causes cerebellar dysfunction and loss of uh, executive function. So you become disinhibited and you do stupid things and you've also got gait and coordination. So that's what it feels like to be drunk, right? but we also know that chronic high exposure to alcohol can actually cause chronic damage to the cerebellum so again you can you can you can appear drunk you haven't drunk anything it's just you know you've, you've just rotted away your cerebellum so you don't have that, that ability to coordinate movement it can also cause dementia and uh, the, the particular kind of dementia that it can cause is um Wernicke's encephalopathy, which then progresses to Korsakoff psychosis. And that's a result of thiamine deficiency, which is associated with poor nutrition in the context of alcohol use disorder. And it can cause various other peripheral nerve damage uh, conditions mm-hmm. called peripheral neuropathies. Then if we move to the heart, it can cause a cardiomyopathy. So what is a cardiomyopathy? So it's basically the inability of the, or the failure of the pump mechanism of the heart that is not due to um, ischemic heart disease. And so you end up effectively with a syndrome of heart failure. Now, also, you have to bear in mind that thiamine deficiency can also cause that as well. So there's two reasons why someone with alcohol use disorder might have an issue with his heart but it, you know fundamentally it can cause heart failure and that can actually if, I, if if people continue to drink it can actually lead to death due to heart failure then if we look at the liver everyone everyone knows that you know that one of the consequences of heavy drinking is cirrhosis but there are stages of liver damage prior to that so you can end up with issues like uh, um, inflammation of the liver or fatty liver then fibrosis and then cirrhosis but not everyone knows this that for every, for, if you've got cirrhosis, you have a 2 to 5% chance per year of developing liver cancer. It doesn't matter what caused the cirrhosis. It's just all cirrhotics have a 2 to 5% risk of liver cancer per year. So if you've developed cirrhosis as a result of alcohol use, you are effectively putting yourself at risk of cancer, and you need to be monitored every six... Well, the recommendations is you need an ultrasound scan every six months to, to look for cancer. If we look to the gonads, so, you know, the, the, I always talk about James Bond and, and how you know virile he is. But if you look at actually how much he drinks per movie, you know, any other lesser human being would not be able to sustain his activity. So it really- All those
0: martinis.
1: All those shaken but not stirred <laughs> martinis. I mean, you know, two of those. And, you know, over time, yeah. it will catch up on you. And then we have to understand the role of cancer. So we know- that if there are certain cancers that, that the risk of which goes up irrespective of your alcohol level. And then we also know there's a group of cancers where you kind of need to be drinking more than 10 standard units per week to actually get there. And that's one of the reasons why we had the maximum of 10 standard units per week uh, agreed on in, in Australia. So, oropharyngeal cancer, breast cancer, and esophageal cancer, these cancers, the minute you drink a drop of alcohol, your risk of these cancers goes up. Whereas you kind of need to drink more than 10 standard units to develop pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, ovarian cancer, or colon cancer. So you need to put that into perspective. If you drink heavily, not only are you at risk of uh, liver cancer from cirrhosis, you're also at risk of all of these other cancers. You're also at risk of going, um, of developing dementia and then dying of heart failure. So you have to ask yourself, you know, if, if alcohol was a a new drug developed on the market today, it would not pass any regulatory authority. But it's been with us, you know, human beings know how to numb pain in the short term. And alcohol has been used for millennia to numb pain, both psychological pain and, and physical pain.
0: Hmm. And it's uh, I just want to make a point there about you made about the alcoholic um, cardiomyopathy, which is the heart failure um, and many people actually might think that you have to drink high amounts for a long time for long, for several years before you can actually develop cardiomyopathy, but that's not in fact true. I remember actually having a young guy who was in his late twenties who actually had cardiomyopathy. Um, he came in with heart failure symptoms and it was related to alcohol. Um, mm. Because he was heavily consuming it, so it doesn't yeah, mean binging. you have to be an old yeah old yeah. older person to yeah. actually develop these diseases.
1: yeah I mean alcohol yeah. is a, is just is, is a toxin you know so some it is. People are, so you also have to, there's also an issue about susceptibility, but overall you know, you need to drink it in moderation and be aware of the risks.
0: Yeah, I guess that comes down to when you see sometimes people mm. who've consumed high levels of alcohol and their liver functions fine and they're okay. And then those who've consumed far lesser, they tend to have more of their after effects of liver damage, which comes mm. down to all the other variability like genetics and gender and all those things, but which we won't go into it today. Um So I guess what I'd like to also just touch on and get pick your brain on is really the treatment of alcohol um, use disorder. Um, Obviously, as usual, alcohol treatment, I mean, any treatments, you can divide it into um, pharmacological where you use medications and the other part, other arm of the treatment is really more therapy. So obviously, you know, we'll come back to the therapies later, but could you take us through the options of uh, medications that are out there and how could people get help if they needed it?
1: So I think it's really important to understand, is the patient addicted to the substance? Or is the patient addicted to how the substance makes them feel? There's a, the the group of people who are addicted to how the substance makes them feel is much bigger than the group of people who are primarily addicted to the substance. Because let's think about this. A lot of people have a problem with alcohol because they are using it to treat pain, low self-esteem, anxiety, stress, you know.
0: Loneliness. Loneliness. Boredom.
1: Yeah. So are they addicted to how the alcohol makes them feel or are they addicted to the alcohol? Because if it's the former, then you treat the pain, the loneliness, the low self-esteem, the anxiety, depression, the alcohol Mm -hmm. use disorder just goes away.
0: So that's where it comes down to a really good um, seeing a doctor and trying to nut out what is the cause of it. it?
1: You cannot just say, you know, you, you have to have a holistic assessment. If we move on to the second group of people, then those are the people who are primarily addicted to the substance. And they usually start out in the first group and then they move into the second group. Because again, alcohol use disorder doesn't happen out of nowhere. There's always a reason why people start alcohol and then journey through to, into developing alcohol use disorder. But if you are primarily addicted to the substance, then you need potentially an alcohol detox, which is a medically supervised management of your withdrawal. And then you, you would then be put on to relapse prevention. Uh, and that could be either pharmacological or psychological or both. So the question then becomes, well, there's two questions I think we need to ask. Is first of all, why do you need to have a supervised detox? And then what do you do for a supervised detox? So why do we need a detox? Well, the answer is a certain group of people, especially those who have been drinking heavily for more than five years, they're more likely to develop complications of withdrawal. And these include perceptual disturbances, seizures, and delirium tremens. So we want to avoid those complications at all costs. And so that's why we treat alcohol withdrawal. So how do, what do we do to treat it? So the commonest uh, medication that is used to treat alcohol withdrawal are the benzodiazepines, and we like to use long-acting benzodiazepines if we can. It's something like diazepam, and we give regular amounts of diazepam throughout the day for a week to then help people through that phase of detox. And then once they've moved through that detox phase, then we start uh, relapse prevention therapy. And th- this is designed to stop people... Uh, falling off the wagon effectively. And if we talk about medicines and psychology, if we go to medicines first, there's two licensed products in the Australian market at the moment for this. And one is Naltrex and the other one is uh, acamprosite. And these are medications that are designed to reduce craving and reduce the joy of um, drinking. So it's said that naltrexone prevents a lapse becoming a relapse and then a which increases the risk of or increases the chances of abstinence. So they work in slightly different ways. Then, if we look into the psychological therapies, basically talking therapies, AA, SMART Recovery, these have been proven to uh, to increase the chance of abstinence. And to mean, and increase the success rate of relapse prevention therapies. So, really, I recommend the two together. I recommend medication and peer support groups and and other types of psychological interventions to help people. The key thing, though, is to if for anyone watching, the key thing is to understand that the first issue is to get help. Get is recognize the problem and then seek help. And I would emphasize that anyone who is dealing with a patient who's who presents with an alcohol use disorder, the first thing has got the first rule of thumb has got to be be warm and welcoming. Your smile, your greeting, the way you react to the news that the patient in front of you has got potentially an issue with alcohol is perhaps going to save their lives. So often I hear patients tell me that they felt rejected and stigmatized when they first disclosed their problem with alcohol to their doctor. And that then sent them into a tailspin and they didn't seek help for another two to five years or 10 years, during which time they remain at risk of harm. So the key thing is to not reject, not stigmatize patients. And if you don't know what to do to help, then pick up the phone to someone who does.
0: That's very good advice, Fahul. All right. I guess in the interest of time, um, do you have any final words that you'd like to tell People. I mean, my my one my one tip for this is really, if there are other people in the household who are also regularly consuming alcoholers, to do try to do it together because that's been my experience. When one's trying to quit, the other one's drinking, they end up relapsing and things. So I think if you try to do it together, or, or with your social circle, it would be better than doing it by yourself. Um, and also with the support of a, you know, your GP or mm. any doctors that you're in, that's involved in your care.
1: Yeah, the one thing I would say that I forgot to mention there's one point is: don't try and quit alcohol. Don't if you're drinking heavy amounts of alcohol, do not quit suddenly without talking to a doctor first, because you run the risk of an unsupervised uh, withdrawal, and then you run the risk of complications. And
0: you don't want that. We don't. On want that, that note, Vogel All right, thank you so much for joining us today, um, and we'll see you next time.